I'm David Priever, the producer of Underworld, behind the scenes of the NCA. Throughout this series, I was fascinated to meet over 70 NCA officers, global partners and specialists, hearing about the incredible work bringing dangerous criminals to justice over the last decade. He was a very committed, very active people trafficker. I, I dread to think how many people he trafficked. It must have been in the thousands before he was actually caught. Criminals are quite resourceful and if they'll exploit the marketplace. There is a market to bring people in, absolutely. But he was maximising his opportunities. So not only was he bringing them in, he was taking them out as well. It was almost like he had like a secretary. Three migrants from Greece, pay more, it's urgent, call them back. He used, during the course of the investigation, and some of the historic stuff that we were able to identify, he, he ran about 20 mobile phones in excess of 20 mobile phones. January 2017, Mokhtar was living in rented accommodation and him and his wife were both unemployed and no means of legitimate income. You wind the clock forward four years to when he was arrested. He had a property portfolio worth about a million pounds. I remember getting in about four in the morning, so Mokhtar, creature of habit, left his house. We'd wait at the traffic lights, we'd put a hard stop in. There was seven or eight other simultaneous arrests, so these 250 officers that we were using, whatever minute it was. We are arresting you today as you've been identified through surveillance and analysis of telecommunications data as a one of a number of individuals to facilitate illegal migration both in and out of the United Kingdom. In this episode, you'll hear how the NCA targeted a prolific network of people smugglers operating out of East London. The gang were responsible for secretly transporting hundreds of people across the UK's borders in the back of lorries. But they were people smugglers with a difference. Not only were they bringing people into the UK, but for payment, they would also move people out. And some of those were fugitives, wanted for serious crimes such as child abuse and murder. This is the story of one of the biggest smuggling networks the NCA has ever seen. An investigation which used surveillance and undercover tactics and eventually led to a 10 and a half year jail sentence for the people smuggler, Mohammed Mokhtar Hussein. Episode 7, The Travel Agent. Every year, people smugglers are responsible for thousands of attempts to enter the UK illegally, in boats, by air or by road. There are many reasons why people choose to come to the UK, but almost all are being exploited by organised criminals. These gangs are happy to risk the safety and security of those they transport for pure profit. One such network came onto the NCA's radar in September 2020. This operation, which was codenamed Symbolry, began with an intelligence report. NCA officers began investigating taxi drivers from East London who were regularly leaving the capital, often late at night, to rendezvous with lorries across the southeast. Leading the operation was senior investigating officer Chris Hill. So we started exploring the information that we had, which related to minicab drivers who were taking people from the London area, surprisingly outbound to lorries, in addition to some intelligence that we had about inbound lorries as well. So the first piece of work for us to deal with was the, the outbound movement and um, targeting those minicab drivers. In late 2020, the UK was slowly emerging from COVID, but some lockdown restrictions were still in place. 
The emergence of new variants of the virus meant that the pandemic wasn't over yet. This presented both challenges and opportunities for Chris and his team. We were coming in and out of lockdown at the time. So a lot of people were at home and uh, there was no other vehicles on the road generally other than police vehicles and people who were essential uh, users and obviously the criminals. Certainly at night when some of this happened, um, we have, the, the migrants were being picked up around about midnight, sometimes slightly before, and then being taken down to Kent. So in, in London we were okay because there was plenty of cover. There were still quite a few people about, but when you get down to the, some of the, the areas in Kent where lorries are laid up, um, it was just us, the criminals. Simon Henson was an intelligence officer on Operation Symbolry. Much of his work took place late at night and in the early hours of the morning, monitoring the migrants' movements and liaising with officers and other agencies. And my responsibility, so I sit there, it's almost like a control room type thing. You've got six or seven screens. So we didn't know who the migrants were and we didn't know where the end location was necessarily going to be. So for me, it was working out who was moving and then we'd look, see if we can find anyone that fit, fit the description of what we were looking for. For Simon and his colleagues, the concerns around COVID-19 presented multiple issues. So for the people that were looking to leave the country, them being out in the streets congregated together, it did help identify them for one aspect. But for them, from an operational perspective, I remember we did have one lorry driver um, that we pulled over. We, placed an interdiction on them, opened the rear of the HGV, the trailer, located the migrants inside, and then they say they've got COVID, thinking we've got to isolate, we've got to test, you've got to try and, although they're overstayers and migrants that need to be arrested and dealt with for immigration offences as well as safeguarded, you've also got safeguarding of the custody suites and the officers that are having to deal with it. So actually it happened once. There was only one time that I remember someone saying they had COVID, but it was obviously, obviously always there in the back of your mind and all the migrants are there with their masks on and stuff as well. What made this people trafficking investigation different to other operations was that the gang wasn't just involved in exploiting migrants. They were smuggling them out too, offering an escape route for those that needed to flee the UK and evade justice. Criminals are quite resourceful and they'll exploit the marketplace. There is a market to bring people in, absolutely. But he was maximising his opportunities. So not only was he bringing them in, he was taking them out as well. So if you're in the haulage business, you never run a lorry empty because it's costing you fuel, driver's wages, wear and tear on the wagon. Mm. So you always try and get a load. So if you've got a, a job that's going from France to the UK, you'll always try and get a job coming from the UK out to France so that you are getting paid both ways. So he was getting paid for bringing people into the UK and then getting paid for taking them out. For us, it was the outbound that surprised everybody, even immigration, who this is their immigration enforcement, this is their, their bread and butter. Every time you would tell people it's outbound, and everyone would go, Out, outbound? And you're like, yeah, it's, out, it's outbound. So you know, I think it was about 126 people stopped in the end. But yeah, there was some, some were wanted for offences, or anything ranging from um, sort of murder, manslaughter offences, uh, there were some sexual offences, low level thefts. Some were wanted for failing to appear at court and things like that. So there were some people that were probably using it as a method of getting out and away from the judicial system of the United Kingdom. Sitting behind his computer screen in the early hours of the morning, Simon Henson would try to piece together the migrants' movements. 
a complex game of nocturnal cat and mouse. I'd be running ANPR analysis. Can we evidence these, these individuals? Can we ID who they are, pick them up and start planning the routes down and perhaps see a vehicle that's gone from East London through the Blackwall Tunnel, through the uh, A2, M2 and heading down towards Dover. And at that point, I'm calling Chris, the SIO, informing him. He then makes a decision whether we have to try and catch up with that vehicle, identify it. 10, 15 vehicles trying to identify which ones are likely to be involved. So trying to work out the right one and point them in the right direction of the surveillance team was sort of the primary goal. I'd also then, if I'm missing it, I'm potentially breaking out and disseminating intelligence to the ports to say, can you look out for this vehicle? I'd perhaps get Kent, um, Kent Policing helped us quite a lot with trying to stop vehicles. So it was all about trying to point the surveillance team in the right direction from a control room, but then also mitigate any risks at the same time. We encountered people that were wanted for murder, people who were wanted for child sexual exploitation, sexual touching of children that were trying to leave the jurisdiction, so they were getting in the back of the lorries. There were people that were subject to deportation orders as well. So if you're in the UK and you've been subject to deportation, you're gonna get sent back to a country that perhaps you don't wanna get sent back to. So if you can make the trip across to France in the back of the lorry, the French don't have the power to deport you back to that country. Equally, there's people that came over here on various conditions of entry that were probably false. They managed to secure that level of um, entry so that they could stay in the UK. Now, some of the conditions that are attached to that is if you leave the UK for any reason, it resets. And if you come back in again, you might not be admitted. So people were going out, sneaking out because of their immigration restrictions. Um, we also had some people who um, wanted to get to Europe and to do that, you needed to get a Schengen visa. So the, um, they, I think, believe they came in from Morocco. It was a, a husband and wife came in from Morocco and they flew into Gatwick, got out of Gatwick airport and then found their way into the back of a lorry, having had the stamps stamped to come into the UK but they, they couldn't get into France. So they, they took the route of a, of a lorry. So there was a whole heap of reasons why people were getting in the back of the lorries. Um, some that I'd, I, were completely new to me. The gang was using predominantly Romanian drivers to take migrants down to the coast. Each time a lorry was pulled over, the NCA needed to make arrests, process the migrants and collect evidence. And a key part of that work was the seizure of mobile phones. John Larkin had the job of analysing those phones and making sense of millions of lines of data. At the time, I was working as a senior analyst, which involves managing a team of analysts in various regions and areas. One of the key things you're always going to look at is how can you attribute a, a phone or a communication device to an individual? Criminals are just like anybody else and they're always going to have a phone, but it's a case of how do you say that that person has that phone? Early on in the investigation, the work by John and his team identified one common number that kept appearing on the migrants' phones. That number belonged to Mohammed Mokhtar Hussain, a Bangladeshi cafe owner living in London. He had a taste for expensive cars and sent at least one child to a £12,000 a year private school. There were a couple of numbers that, that, that cropped up. One of them related to, we were able to attribute to um, Mokhtar Hussain, and the other one was Nurullah who was his trusted lieutenant. I think he'd been in the country for 15 years. He didn't have indefinite leave to remain, so he had a date when his immigration status was to be reviewed, 
and that date actually expired whilst he was in custody. So he's from Bangladesh originally. He was known as Bengali um, by a lot of the uh, communications on the phone. He lived in the Woodford Green area in a very nicely furnished semi-detached property, number of high value cars, children at private school, and he ran a restaurant in Whitechapel. Scanning hundreds of phones was a huge task for John and his team, especially as most phones these days are passcode protected. The tactic was, you know, if you picked up a migrant with a phone, you'd seize that phone and you look at, um, you know, call data a few days before it was picked up and a few days afterwards to say, OK, is that... So you've got, you're looking at every time you've got a phone, you're looking at the data for that and then you're trying to obviously cross-match it against the people in the criminal network right. as well. It wasn't just the migrant phone, so we were prosecuting the drivers as well. So generally with a migrant, as the senior investigating officer, I had to stipulate strict parameters, because you imagine some of these phones are iPhones, um, and they're like many computers. So if you start delving in too far back, you're going to be completely bogged down. So we managed to I uh, set a strategy that on migrant phones, we'd go back 24 hours post-event. Mm and see what the numbers were, because I, I was satisfied that the build-up and the arrangements for this migrant movement would be within 24 hours of them getting into those minicabs and making their ways to the lorries. It is an offence under UK law not to you know, unlock a phone if requested by a law enforcement officer. So some were very compliant, some weren't, and of course we've got capability to, to deal with, with, with that. And even if you can't get into the handset to see what's physically saved now, you can apply for the call data, so if nothing else, you can at least see the numbers that are being contacted and where they've been. It soon became clear that Hussein was running a well-organised operation, and that included keeping up-to-date records on all of the migrants who were using his services. He had effectively agents working for him, so in his book of ledgers, he would, he, and in his phone, he had people called agents, and they would refer work to him, and they would get a cut for that. So it was just a re referral process where they would recruit four or five people and they'd get £50 per person. One of the things that we found subsequent in the ledger that Mr Hussein kept were some of his conditions of travel. Um, he was almost like um, a, a, a travel agent. He had terms and conditions of, uh, of travel and one of them was no mobile phones. Um, but fortunately, most of the migrants didn't ignore that part of his conditions of, uh, of travel. Um, and we were able to capture that evidence. So it was a case of, you know, can you connect those um, migrants with their phone numbers to either the, um, the taxi drivers or the lorry drivers, or indeed to Hussein himself. And at the same time, I had analysts on my team. At the beginning, you know, you're doing it on what we call like an intelligence-only basis. You know, you don't have it in evidence yet. You've not gone and put it into that evidential state, which, which isn't really um, a, a complicated thing to do. What it involves is saying, you know, we've, we've already applied for the data under the correct legislation, and then the person who's applied for it then will just write a statement producing it. So it moves from intelligence to that evidential position. It was in two stages. So you had the, the migrants were, would corral in a certain location, and minicabs from various parts of London would then make their way to a rendezvous point with a lorry and then those people would then be transferred from the, the minicab into a, into a lorry. By now, Chris and his Operation Symbol routine were constructing a picture of Hussein's operation, its scale and the people involved. What I built up is what 
sometimes is described as a fan conspiracy. If you imagine the bit of the fan, the, the handle part where the, the heel is, and then you open it up, um, he's at, sits at the top with his 20-odd phones, and then you can show the lines coming down to the minicab drivers. Minicab drivers sometimes used to speak to the migrants, and then him into the lorry drivers. And that's where his defence fell down, because when you had those 20 phones, there wasn't anything up the other side of it. It was just him. Meanwhile, for Simon Henson and his team, the intelligence work to stop the lorries continued. Every day we would be deploying. So you'd, you'd come in and do a normal shift and you think you're going home at four or five o'clock and then you get intelligence that there's going to be a migrant run. Um, we've obviously got responsibilities to protect the public and we can't allow that facilitation to happen. So we've got to pr prevent that. If they had their little hotspots, it'd primarily be, primarily be in East London. Five or six people would be waiting in this location with suitcases, bags, coats just waiting for 45 minutes to an hour, and it just sort of didn't seem right. And ultimately they were waiting for one of Mox's couriers, who were taxi drivers, to pick them up and then take them uh, the A2M2 route. And that's when they would meet a complicit lorry driver. So, but the problem is it was yeah, the relentless nature because of what he was doing it had to happen out of hours, which means it will go on at about four in the morning every day. Sergeant Liam Moore works for the Metropolitan Police, running a team of dog handlers. He was called in to assist the NCA when a lorry was intercepted. For Liam, that involved a search on a busy motorway using his dog, Inca. On the day in question, I was on patrol on the M25 area when I heard transmissions over the radio uh, from traffic colleagues that were following this heavy goods vehicle and required assistance in stopping it. And I was nearby. I knew eventually a dog van would be required, so I signed myself to go and take part in the operation. With many of the lorry stops during Operation Simbury, Officers who were called to respond had to think on their feet, calling on all their skills and training. So a lot of the, the tactical options from that point is really my own planning in my head of what I'm going to do to support the operation. And to that end, I kind of didn't really need to know the ins and outs of how the operation had come to take place. It, it's more the logistics of how we stop a large vehicle in a dynamic environment like that. MP, Oscar Whiskey 3-5. Oscar Whiskey 3-5, go ahead, MP, over. Oscar Whiskey 3-5, go ahead. Yeah, got follow me board on, driver's following, got compliance, um, we're just going to go down to the A3 slip, rolling road behind, got control of the vehicle. I might know that that's a truck we're stopping at this junction, how, how desperate are they to escape from police, is there something else we don't know about the people individually that are in there that, that might cause them to pose a higher risk than, than certain other people. The other challenge is working in a motorway environment like that, it's loads of lanes of fast moving traffic, uh, it's a dangerous place to be working, particularly if you've got a a dog that you might need to let off lead. The last thing you want is to see a dog run out onto the motorway. MP Oscar Whiskey 35 is going to slide down on the slip once we're past the, um, why don't they return on the exit? That's all safe, thank you very much. MP Oscar Echo 31. Echo 31, go ahead, MP Oscar. Yeah, we're just approaching the A3 exit now. Do you want us to remain with the convoy or push past for a Barracuda contingency? Stay with the convoy, please. Stay with the convoy, Impeva. Well, we brought the HGV to a stop on the slip road of the M25, uh, Wisley Interchange, off the main motorway carriageway, but those are still live lanes. So I was already planning for the fact that we might have multiple people try and break out of the HGV and, and make a run for it. Uh, or fight. So my plan straight away was to contain the truck in case we did get runners. So as soon as we came to a standstill, I came out with Inca on a lead and I took up a position at the back of the truck where I could see the back doors and the side and both sides. So if anybody was to try and run, I'd be able to use Inca to detain them or deter them from running, basically to avoid anyone running out onto the M25, either the people that might be in the truck or my colleagues. 
Well, I took the decision at that point that the safest thing was to put Inca into the truck first. Um, I didn't know how heavily loaded it could be, so there could have been loads of hiding places that she'd have had to search through to find people. So I lifted her into the back of the truck and then straight away saw it was actually fairly lightly loaded. So um, I've asked her to speak, basically. I can give her a command to make a racket and bark at people, even if she can't see them. So we did that, and eventually I could see people were hiding behind the load, and I was able to get them to show themselves uh, what's keeping Inca away from them. Police officer, dog, show yourself now, I'll send the dog in. From memory, there was approximately 15 people in there. What I wanted to do was ensure they came out safely in a controlled manner. So I withdrew with Inca to the, the exit doors of the truck and we called them out individually then. And then once I was happy that the numbers were down to just a couple left, then I took the dog out of the truck because there was no need for her to be there anymore. The work carried on week in, week out, stopping drivers and lorries and making arrests. So we were potentially dealing with two or three movements a week for around six, seven month period. During the course of the investigation, we had to disrupt some of the activity. We were using overt police stops on the minicabs before they actually reached the lorries to stop them from actually boarding the lorry. Slowly, the NCA began to dismantle Hossein's operation, removing the people he relied on the most. We'd taken six lorry drivers away from him, so they were in custody. A lot of them pleaded guilty very early on and were sentenced to terms of imprisonment. Um, we'd taken that away from him, so he'd lost that facility. Effectively, that had disrupted some of his activities, but he still carried on. And then he moved over to the individual who could break into lorries for him, which was another outlet for him to go. Because he'd been doing it for so long, I don't know whether he thought perhaps it was just COVID as well, thinking that there are probably naturally more inspections or there's less vehicles on the road. So I don't know whether there was an element of that, but I would, I would imagine by the time it got to the fourth or fifth Romanian lorry driver, he probably, he must have had some sort of suspicion because all of a sudden they were getting arrested, charged, remanded, getting prison sentences and they're all slowly disappearing. Without a network of Romanian truckers and London taxi drivers, Hussein had to come up with other methods to move migrants down to the coast. There was a couple of events at South Mims, that and Thurrock. We were out on surveillance one evening following a minicab driver and um, we ended up down on the A13 um, in the middle of the night. So there was a number of migrants that were placed into a lorry and a lay-by on the A13. And then suddenly they all came out of that and there was a bomb burst from the back of that lorry. Subsequent to that event, we were able to speak to the driver. And what appears to have happened is that uh, he was asleep in his cab and a number of migrants from another gang had been placed in the back and were waiting to be shipped out of the country, unbeknown to the, the driver at the time. And then our migrants were put into the same lorry with those migrants already in there. And there was a, some sort of fight going on between the migrants as to who would be staying, who would be going. Um, and that's what woke the driver up. Um, and then the driver came out to see what was going on. And obviously everybody bomb burst away from, from that particular lorry, but not deterred by that. They then carried on to try and find another lorry to break into. And they found one in South Mint services. Once we picked off the lorry drivers, his Romanian lorry drivers that Mokta was recruiting and paying, 
he then got desperate and he had to try and find other ways, which is then where you moved across to people like Norilla um, and uh, Wakas Ikram, who were doing similar things. They've all been arrested, and, but he would just then move and try and get the services from other people who offer slightly different elements. So um, Norilla was connected to her Ikram and others, and they were more into breaking into HGVs. I've never worked in a job that had so much good evidence available. It was a case of, you know, going through the data and saying, OK, what is it that I want to demonstrate? Because if you, if you put this in, in front of a jury, you have to think, how will they understand it? Because there's, you know, you can do technical analysis on 16 phones, but, the, you know, the, the litmus test is, will they understand this? And so, can I take this complex data and turn it into a product that somebody who's got no technical knowledge can pick it up and understand it? The operation had been underway for almost nine months. In May 2021, Chris Hill finally made the decision that it was time to arrest Hussein and all those involved in his network, including Noor Allah and Waka Sikram. A huge operation that meant officers had to be on standby at several locations across London. There were a number of premises that we had to go to, a number of arrests to make, but the most important thing was securing Hussein and it was his arrest that triggered all the other activities. So there was surveillance around an awful lot of uh, premises uh, in the London area, maintaining control of the subjects that, uh, that were featuring on the investigation. I remember getting about four in the morning, all of the officers were in there. So Mokta, creature of habit, left his house, would wait at the traffic lights that was near to his home address, we put a hard stop in and arrested him in the car because he had all of his phones on him so we could, for attributing phones to, back to him. So that was the point. So I remember putting the strike in, there was a strike going in on the, um, at the traffic lights. And at that point, Chris called the strike for everyone else. And then at that point, there was seven or eight other simultaneous arrests. So these 250 officers that we were using, whatever minute it was. <laughs> all start at, uh, going through the doors simultaneously and arresting everyone. We are arresting you today as you've been identified through surveillance and analysis of telecommunications data as, num as a one of a number of individuals to conspire together between the 1st of September 2020 and the 19th of May 2021 to facilitate illegal migration both in and out of the United Kingdom. You're also suspected of money laundering offences associated with unlawful immigration on or before the 19th of May 2021, OK? One of the things that we found in his ledger was effectively no refunds if customers change their mind. If we fail, you get £500 refund. No phones allowed. You were supposed to make sure you had €300 Euros on you in cash. And certainly some of the things that he had in his ledger was people's names, and it was like London to France, Paris to London, London to Holland, and certainly in some of the migrants' phones, he was saved as L2F, so London to France, and known as Bengali. And then from that point, it's a method of collating, collecting intelligence, taking people off to, we secured custody suites for everyone, so we could all have them in the same place, because you want to, because they might make significant comments, and you might want to liaise with everyone that's interviewing. So we had a secured custody suite for everyone for the day, and then it was, reviewing all of the material that was collected and for Mokta there was way over 300 exhibits and it was you know painfully went went through those for about two weeks and it was ledgers upon ledgers upon ledgers of mobile numbers it was almost like um he had like a secretary it almost looked like that sort of format someone writing notes saying three migrants from Greece pay more it's urgent call them back it was just all there documented 
like a bank statement, but just of his criminal activity on page after page. As well as those ledgers detailing all of Hussein's activities, there were yet more mobile phones that John Larkin and his team needed to analyse. Hussein had numerous phones. His, it was an attempt by him to try to frustrate law enforcement activity. If I've got multiple phones, you know, it'll be harder for them to find me. We have various different softwares that we can use to analyse it. We can, of course, do it manually if we, if we needed to, you know. With the 16 phones that Hussein was saying, they're, they're not mine, they're not mine, on his registered phone, that is, you know, a, a contract phone that he's paying a monthly bill on, so it's incontrovertible. Um, when you got into the, that handset, a number of those criminal phones um, were saved as various bits and pieces because he obviously wanted to remind himself what they were. So a couple of them had nicknames, but other ones had things like Black Lyca, Spare Sim, and then there was one which uh, which was my favourite, and I, it was originally in Bengali, but it basically translated as my, my phone is currently with Alon the Thief. Following his arrest, Hussein admitted conspiring with Noor Allah to move people into or out of the UK between December 2018 and May 2021, but he continued to deny being head of the crime group. While he was on remand awaiting a trial, the NCA were investigating his finances, and that required a specialist. I'm Robert Goldring. I'm a senior financial investigator with the National Crime Agency. He'd already submitted a basis of plea, suggesting that he was at the very bottom of the hierarchy and there were many, many people above him and he was only involved in the trafficking of migrants out of the UK and not into the UK and all he'd earned was £100 per migrant that he trafficked out of the UK. And it became apparent to me quite quickly that Mox Hussein was making a lot of money out of his enterprise. Hossein spent a lot of that money on school fees and home improvements, cars and holidays, and he invested in what he also claimed was a legitimate enterprise. First of all, he started up a business called On Time um, UK International, which he claimed was a student letting business. As far as I could tell, it had not done a single legitimate transaction or piece of business in the three or four years that it was operating. He claimed on his account opening documentation that he was almost like a middleman between universities and students and he said he had relationships with certain universities and I was able to completely disprove that in court and even his forensic account couldn't, couldn't find a single transaction that linked back to legitimate trading on that part. But further down the line, I think maybe two years into well, I'd say this is criminal enterprise. I would imagine that the money was getting too great to hide at that point. And then there was the cafe, right on the edge of the city of London. Him and his wife, Shireen, bought a cafe in Whitechapel. It was a genuine cafe. It did do a small amount of trading, but he was quite clearly using it to launder cash that he just had no way of legitimately sort of laundering through his everyday accounts. So, I mean, I think I was able to evidence during the trial that... You know, he was looking at sort of about fourteen to twenty thousand pounds a month in cash that he was laundering through his his cafe. I mean, an extraordinary amount when you consider that the cafe's legitimate trading was in the thousands. He appeared to hijack someone's account. So I think as part of one of the sweeteners for one of the deals, I think he took a migrant out of the UK and he handed over his account details and code. But then when we delved into the detail, he, he didn't do it very cleverly because he paid his school fees for his daughter from my account. It's estimated that he'd made over a million. That he had a property portfolio as well. During his trial, he basically said that he was an honest, legitimate businessman his whole life up until two months before he was arrested. And what happened is his childhood friend, Sahel Sheikh, who is 20 years younger than him, 
had gone back to Bangladesh for a holiday of unspecified duration. Now, when he went back on holiday, he said to Mokhtar, I'm going on holiday, could you look after my telephone while I'm on holiday? And he said, of course, Sahel, we're childhood friends, I'll absolutely do that for you. And then he said, well, why are you looking after my phone? Could you perhaps look after my people trafficking business? <laughs> Despite having no background or experience in the business, and because they're such childhood, good childhood friends, Mokta Hussain said, yes, of course, Sahel, I will look after your people trafficking business. Despite the evidence stacked against him, including the ledgers and mobile phone data, Mohammed Mokta Hussain refused to go quietly, leading to yet more work for Chris Hill at the Operation Simplery team. He did his best to disrupt the judicial process. Everything that he tried to do, he sacked numerous lawyers. He had legal aid, the application for which was potentially dubious because at one point he self-instructed a QC, which triggered an investigation, a separate investigation by the NCA and my team into how on earth did that get funded? And funny enough, when we started to probe that, that QC decided he'd walk away from it. Eventually, he did plead guilty, but he disputed the facts. So he pleaded guilty, but gave the prosecution a basis of his plea, trying to minimise his role in the whole thing. And we could refute everything that he said. What came next was a Newton hearing, a type of trial in English law where a defendant pleads guilty to a crime, where there's a dispute about the facts of the case. The judge, rather than a jury, then decides which version of events is true and determines the sentence. It's not a trial, so there's no jury, so it's just the judge. And the judge needs to examine the evidence that's contested. The defence enlisted the uh, assistance of experts around telephones, cell site, and quite recently he, he was sentenced to ten and a half years. He had a property portfolio worth about a million pounds. He had had maybe over half a million of cash go into his account. He had four cars. His daughter was going to private school. He was taking luxury holidays. He had put a new loft conversion into his house. But certainly, I mean, if you look at where he was in 2017 to where he was in 2021, he, he made a lot of money out of his enterprise. And it just, I mean, it just didn't equate with him earning £100 out of per migrant he was running. Both during the trial and the subsequent hearing, Hossein did his utmost to stifle the process and alter the jail term he was inevitably facing. Curiously, he did try to barter with the judge during the proceedings. At one point, he said to the judge that he would happily take eight years, and the judge reminded him that it didn't actually work that way. And then during the Newton hearing, he asked for an indication of what he would get, again offering his eight years. The judge said no, nine and a half. But she said that on the basis that she didn't hear any of the evidence and he would be sentenced immediately. He declined that offer. Um, having heard, I think, one day of the Newton hearing evidence, he then went back to the judge and said, is that nine and a half years still on the table? And she said, no, I made it clear to you that nine and a half years was on the basis that she wouldn't hear any evidence. So that nine and a half years is no longer available to him. If you get convicted of certain type of offences, they're called Scheduled Two Offences under the Proceeds Crime Act, and people trafficking is one of them. It's basically the sort of offence where you've made money from it, and people trafficking being one of those. So he then becomes some, subject to a confiscation investigation where we look at everything he's earned over the last six years. They call it a lifestyle offence, 
and we basically come with a calculation as to how much we think he's earned from his criminal enterprise. That then goes to court, and we tell the court we think that this person's earned X amount. Uh, for Mokhtar Sain, I believe it's going to be around 1 to £1.2 million. Oh, they'll have their opportunity to dismiss some of the claims that I've had and kind of meet somewhere in the middle. The judge will sign a confiscation order for X amount, and it's at that point we have the asset recovery team within the NCA who will seek to recover those assets. So certainly things like funds in bank accounts, they're very easy, the money's very easy to go get hold of. Um, the houses, and again, they're easy, easy to get hold of, but it takes time. The money in Bangladesh will be more problematic because we don't have any system in place to repatriate that money. But the leverage we do have um, with the Proceeds of Crime Act is if he doesn't pay that money, he gets a default sentence, and they're actually they're really quite punitive. If he got a five-year default sentence, he'd have to serve every day of those five years, which would be significant, seeing as he had a ten-and-a-half-year sentence. It was my first operation within the National Crime Agency. From wanting to prove that we could do it, to be able to still arrest him, I think it demonstrates sort of the impact that we can have if we work together and really push forward. It was a great result. 